0: Hi, this is Aaron Davis and you're listening to Talking Blues.
1: Did you start with the piano? Is that where everything Oh came yeah.
0: Out? Yeah, I've had a piano, been playing the piano since I was old enough to sit on a telephone book and start, you know,
1: you know, I was playing playing early. So when did the love of music, like, did the love of music come to you immediately?
0: Yeah, I think so. My parents t- told me that they w- they would put on this one record when I was like, when I was before I could even talk, and I would start crying whenever the, there was a part where the trombone would go, wah, 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 wah. and whenever that would come on, they said <laughs> I would always start, I would break into tears. So really, so you know, I, I think that yeah, I mean, I think that I was always f- affected by music for sure.
1: Do you, do you know the album? What was it song? No, I,
0: no. It's I was really I was too young. Wow.
1: <laughs> that's amazing that you connected that early.
0: Well, that's what that's what they said. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but always always there was a piano there, and I always I'd be uh, trying to play a tune or whatever, and and uh, you know I took piano lessons when I was young, and and uh, you know at a certain point I started listening to popular music, and so I would play things by ear and learn things by ear and I think I even might have made up a song in grade six or something like that and played it at a, at a you know at a <laughs> the school recital or something so I was always into music and and all of my friends we were all into music you know when we, I moved to Toronto uh, I started to listening to CHUM CHUM AM yeah, yeah, and I was a chumbug. And so every you know, and we were really my friends and I were onto the British invasion, so we would get, um, and we lived not that far from where the Chum headquarters are. They're close to you too, yeah. and so every week we get the Chum chart, and we'd look and we'd see whether you know how are the Beatles doing, how are you know Peter and Gordon doing, whatever you know what's what's happening, and we would we would go to the nearest record store. There's a record store on Avenue Road back then. And you could just browse, and they would put music on uh, while you were sitting there looking at forty-fives, because it's mostly it's all we could afford to buy was forty-fives. Right. But uh, it was, you know, I have very fond memories of those uh, those days. And then, and then when, you know, Beatles Beatles albums would come out. You know, we would uh, all those records. We would listen to them from start to finish. Like we'd just be on the uh, living room floor and. Just listening over and over again to to the tunes, so they all kind of worked. A lot of those tunes, and my parents had a really good record collection. You know, they were very eclectic in their mm-hmm. their musical tastes. So my dad would have like Lead Belly or Big Bill Broonzy records, like blues records. Ray Charles we would listen to a bunch. Uh, Charlie Parker, Cannonball Adderley, but also all this classical music: Handel, Bach. And, uh, not, you know, we didn't, they didn't listen to pop music so much, popular music of the time, but they had classical jazz and blues and folk music, lots of folk music.
1: When you were listening to all these different kinds of music, did you distinguish the difference? Did it matter, or was it just music?
0: No, it's just really absolutely no difference at all. But in the hierarchy, there was no hierarchy of, you know, music. I think that at a certain point... Uh, When I was studying music, I might have sort of veered a little bit uh, uh, more because I was so in love with jazz Mm -hmm. that I kind of thought of that as being, you know, a difference between art, art, art music and commercial music like music for a commercial. I would sort of think, oh, you know, people have sold out if they've they've done that without really knowing that it was the same people who are a lot of the time. It's the same people in the band playing all the commercials (laughs) as it is playing all those jazz riffs and stuff. But yeah, certainly when I was growing up, uh, I feel that between the scene at home, the scene with my friends, and the scene with my cousins, I come from a big family, uh, they would all, we would all sing music all the time. Like for doing the dishes, everybody would sing, multi-part, you know, harmony, you know. I ring good night ring good night you know everybody's be singing so it's it was just very much a part of uh who i was and and who all the people that I was hanging out with were
1: you know now I know you started in bands relatively early, but at what point did you think that maybe music was going to be your future
0: you know i didn't i did st- I played in bands the way a lot of kids play in bands, you know. We had we would we had like a blues band in high school and stuff, but I wasn't in the school band. I had a bad experience with my uh, my music teacher in grade nine because oh. I I was the guy I wanted to be a uh, I thought I'll be a drummer. I'll learn percussion because there was no piano in the in the school band. And so in my grade nine class, I uh, Jarvis Collegiate. I, I was the drummer, but most of the time I would be the guy who would be playing the bass drum. So it'd be like, oh, can boom, 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 boom. That was me. And so at one point, kind of early on in my grade nine career, um, the uh, music teacher came over and said, Aaron, that's not how you do it. No, get a firm grip, And I was standing on one side and the bass drum was standing on the other side. So you get a firm grip on the beater like this and class watch. So the whole class is watching. And then instead of hitting the drum, he goes and he and he uh, he hits me in the stomach with it with the beater. And so which, of course, I wasn't ready for it. So it totally doubled me over and everyone laughed. And so in the back of my mind, I kind of thought, you asshole. I'm not taking your class. And so Mm -hmm. as soon as I could, you know, like I think it was maybe even halfway through the year, I just got out of that class and I never, I never, it really irks me because I would have loved to have been in, you know, the repertoire in a lot of the high school bands is really good. So it had the, it had the dual effect of making me stay away from that particular class. And then, you know, just do music at home with, with friends or play the piano at home but uh anyways there's probably some skills I could have could have got there it would have been great to maybe learn a, you know the violin or the trumpet or some other instrument because I ended up writing for orchestra and there's a lot of intuitive things that you uh that you learn when you just when you play the instruments as well as write for them mm-hmm. so that was an opportunity miss but but um
1: you did okay though
0: it worked out. Things worked out. And I ran into that guy, that teacher later. He, he ended up teaching a U of T jazz program. And I saw him years later, and he didn't know who I was. And I didn't say, oh, yeah, by the way, you know, you, you should should not uh, try to get a cheap laugh by yeah. hitting, hitting little kids with beaters and <laughs> stuff. Anyway, um, what happened was even though I played music all the time and was playing, you know, like in sort of bands and, you know, I would be trying to learn. A thing happened at a certain point when we were playing. I started hearing some tunes where I couldn't figure out what the heck was going on. <laughs> and there were two tunes uh, in general, or two two people. One was Oscar Peterson.
1: Okay,
0: makes know, sense. You know, would play this tune, I think it's called... Oh, what's it called? Um, It's a question, not what's new. It might be something like what's new, or uh, I I forget what the title of the tune is. But I heard it, and he took this Oscar took this amazing solo. It's blazing. And, and this is back, the only way that I could lift it was by running into the other room and picking up the needle and you know, running back into the, r- the room where the piano was. So I, I, I couldn't figure it out. I mean, I would try playing along, but it was way too fast to play along with. And then the other person that I heard, and I didn't even know who it was, was Keith Jarrett, hmm. who was playing in the Charles Lloyd, uh, Charles Lloyd band. Uh, and he took some amazing solos in that band. And, but, you know, that, that's kind of like psychedelic music. So at a certain point, I kind of realized there's a ceiling to my knowledge. And I think that's an important point in every musician's life is to, to get to the point where you don't know what's happening, the point where you can't do something. And that forces you to change your work habits because otherwise you, you just fall back on the familiar.
1: How old were you when you realized this?
0: Uh, I don't know, maybe sixteen or seventeen, something like that.
1: I'm but, not but sure. You you well, knew enough to so say. No, wait a minute. Well, in Oscar,
0: that's uh, would have been, yeah, fifteen, sixteen, someplace okay. in there. I hadn't yet left high school, but so, uh, but I didn't really have. You know, I didn't. I I could play all sorts of music. But then I I got to the point where I don't really know what's going on with this this Oscar Peterson didn't, with the solo. I didn't know that he was soloing over the changes of a form that was that was you know that it was a song and that the solo was. I didn't know anything.
1: So up until then, when you heard something, it wasn't that difficult for you to figure it out.
0: I could fill it, figure out all the the pop music. Like I could figure out all the uh, uh, the Beatles tunes or the, mm-hmm. the folk tunes. You know there were some certain classical things well the jazz you know the jazz was the kind of the thing that made me wonder what was going on and in general with classical music I, w- I didn't listen to a lot of 20th century classical music so uh mostly what my parents were listening to was you know uh, more traditional classical music and there I could hear all the harm I could hear all the, the harmony mm-hmm. and so it's not I wasn't like listening to Penderecki or anything like that um so uh so it was jazz that brought me into... It was the wake-up call. You don't know what's going on. You need help. And so...
1: <laughs> at uh, least you realized that you could get help or you could learn yeah. that it wasn't beyond your ability, right? That, that there was potential learning this.
0: Yeah. But but then a thing happened. Uh, you know, at a certain point, I was influenced by... I mean, there are a few things that really influenced me. One was I went... My mother got a job teaching in Berkeley, California, December 67 so I left my Canadian school with with the the uh, music teacher that I didn't get along with Um, and uh, I went to uh, Berkeley High School which was right at the heart of the psychedelic era kind of you know 1967 Mm -hmm. 68 uh, you know we would all we were young but we would when we could we would go to the film auditorium we would go to concerts there were a lot of free concerts that we could go to in the park right across the street from the school I was exposed to really a lot of people from all over north america and all over the world really were coming to the bay area at that time it was a really fertile time for music a lot of great bands
1: how much exposure did you have to music live music before then
0: Oh I was deep in okay. so I would go whenever I could afford it, whenever I could. Like when Jerry and the Pacemakers came, I, I was one of the first people to buy tickets, and I was sitting front row center for them when they played at the Eden Auditorium in whatever year it was, 65. Right. And I, But then all these girls started, teenage girls started standing in front of us, and and so the only way I could even see them was by jumping up from the seat to the armrest temporarily <laughs> and... Uh, and the screaming was so loud i could hardly i could hardly hear them
1: okay so what impression did you get from that like i want to do that
0: oh no <laughs> oh. i was never thinking like that no, no. okay no. i was just i was just enjoying the music but i mean i knew i could play but you know the, the, uh, but i it, it would've never occurred to me to be a professional musician it was just i, I just love the music i would get together with friends to play it because because we wanted to play the music, because we got a charge out of playing it. But, so, so, in terms of what made me want to proceed, one of the things that really influenced me was the, the music that I heard when I went to Berkeley, okay. Because it was, uh, and I was young, but I really got a close-up view, and, and I, I heard a lot of amazing stuff. Like, for example, uh the bands the kind of shows that they had back then, uh I remember going to the Fillmore and seeing and it cost like three dollars, maybe three fifty. It was for opening act was Blood, Sweat and Tears, with Al Cooper, the original Blood, Sweat and Tears. Right. And you know they had a lot of great players in there. Yeah. Then there was a band called Jeremy and the Satyrs. Jeremy Steig was a British jazz flutist. Uh then there was James Cotton Blues Band, Mm. who were phenomenal. And they had an amazing piano player, uh, Alberto, Italian blues piano player, fantastic. And then Cream.
1: This is one show.
0: This is one show. And so while Cream were playing, my friend and I, we snuck under the stage because we knew that Ginger Baker at some point was going to play a drum solo, and he had two kick drums, so we shimmied under the stage right under the <laughs> right under the kick drums and listen to like a 10 minute drum solo you know anyway so you know there were a lot of cool experiences that i had and and you know there's a lot of rhythm and blues there there was a band called the loading zone that used to play uh, and there's just you know i'd say black culture too i mean mm-hmm. just in general everywhere when in canada it was things were uh, up until that point, you know, my high school was was multicultural, but my but up until that point, really, I, ha- I hadn't been exposed to to you know James Brown or or all the you know I would just hear what was on Chum basically. Right, right. That was kind of so going to Berkeley. I mean, before I went to Berkeley, uh, we were all because of the Beatles and because of what was happening in music in general, uh, we had been listening to other kinds of music, but I hadn't really been exposed to it very much, uh, up, up close. So when I came back, you know, I was, we would, I would play in bands, try to play in bands when I could, but it wasn't in the school band. So then, uh, uh, at a certain point, uh, partly because of the era, um, I really got into sort of, I, I guess I wanted to be a back to the lander. Right. And so I went to live, I went to live in, um, at this commune, some friends of mine, uh, some girls I knew in school, their dad had just bought like 540 acres in eastern Ontario, and way in the wilderness, no heat, no electricity, no running water. It was like a pump. It was like living like 1860, with you know. But I, for me, it was totally, you know, just a great way to be. And I, I just looked at that, that as being the the future. This is, you know. The, this is what we all have to do. We all have to get back to the land. So I lived there and I tried, you know, we would do, we would do a lot of farm work and stuff and cut down trees and stuff and even some carpentry. Uh, but I don't think I was particularly good at any of it, any of it.
1: Uh, Did that matter though? I mean, if this is the way of life that you were hoping to. But I wanted to be good. I wanted to oh, be okay.
0: really good at stuff. Right. But what happened? A weird thing happened. There was a in the nearby town of Lanark. I mean, we were we were living three quarters of a mile walk from the nearest road. You know, that's that's where we were. And what are you eating? We were eating a whole lot, a whole lot of. Well, we had cows and horses, so I had to milk the cows, and we would have yogurt. We'd make really good yogurt, really good maple syrup, and then we would buy bulk grains. And the only problem was that there were a bunch of people it it sort of turned into a commune and some of the people were really into like macrobiotics and stuff and it, some of the, the the food that was supposed to be quote good for you was all, really hard to <laughs> digest <laughs> so I had a whole lot of yogurt and maple syrup and and buck and make these big pots of buckwheat and stuff and the, you know it's fresh milk the milk was you know amazing but I was well. I was going to say is I wasn't all that good. I wasn't all that good at, at uh, these other things. And what happened was there was a. I wasn't there when this happened. There was a a drop-in center that was this doctor's house, very wealthy person in Lanark had a big house that he enabled to, as a drop-in center, and the people who, that I was living with. Uh, came there one day and somebody was like loading furniture out and and they were told the guy said well I'm moving but I have to leave some things behind so if you want any of the furniture that's back there you can take it and they went well yeah sure that'd be great because in this house we were living it was very very rustic (laughs) I mean it was like a, it was you know there was horse hair on the plaster it was like there, there were pictures from the original loggers and stuff of like uh taking the wood in on horses. And we had horses and sleighs. We were kind of living the way those loggies were. And all this furniture was beautiful, like cherry furniture. And there was a grand piano. There's like a seven-foot grand piano. So when I, I, I came back from a, a brief trip to visit my mother in Berkeley because she had, was teaching out there full-time at that point. And they said, oh, we've got a present for you, Aaron, something I think you'll like, grand piano.
1: So in our house, in our unheated house. (laughs) But did you play any music before that in this in the commune?
0: Well, there's nothing to play.
1: Okay, so that was it. No, no, there was nothing. Totally left your.
0: No, I was I wasn't doing music at at all. I was doing, uh,
1: you know, milking cows.
0: Milking cows, you know. And
1: did you miss music at all?
0: Oh, I I was it was like withdrawal, and I would whenever I could I would hitchhike. It was like a four hour drive back to toronto but i would hitchhike back for a weekend and go hear music go hear bands and then go back you know go back because i didn't i didn't live in toronto right so uh but in any, in any case this piano was there and so i would go there and play you know i'd be i play uh beatles tunes or uh, jimmy cliff tunes or you know, many rivers to cross. And the other people at the commune uh, liked it. They gave me positive feedback from that. And uh, by the time I left, you know, people were saying, uh, you know, it was really great to hear. Oh, but then then here's the thing about, about this happened for about two months. After two months, a police, police woman comes up talking to the guy who sort of is the person who lives there kind of the head of the commune or whatever, and, and says, all that stuff is stolen. And it turned out the guy who was clearing the place, and, you know, there were a lot of back-to-the-landers, right. and that all that furniture had been distributed to, you know, cabinet here, uh, to all the people, all the sort of the back-to-the-landers. Everybody thought it was it was free. Uh, and uh, so it, was, it all had to be of. given back. Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, Anyway, you know, the way you learn about the way I learned about you know, about music was um, it's from people giving feedback. And so I had feedback from, you know, a couple of people. There was also this woman uh, named Margaret Coleman. And I did. I played w- with our band. We had a band. We played in the island. And she came up up to me and she looked me in the eyes and said, you know, you should you should be a musician and she and she died a couple of years after that she said i told this to uh i don't know i can't remember who the last, it was somebody really good it was uh, oscar peterson i can't remember it was somebody famous who had been a you know it was a, that i really liked she said i told it to him when he was a young man too so it might have been oscar peterson so i mean just the fact of her saying that i got that from a few
1: people like a lot of people could, but but other than less. that, you didn't you didn't have but this it, inner thing that you wanted to do this. No, I didn't. I find it strange that you never considered it to be a musician. Obviously, you were talented, or did you think that you were talented in playing music?
0: Well, no, I was just I I I, I thought, uh, you know, I thought that I was talented enough to to play in bands. But no, I never it never occurred to me to be a musician. But then at a certain point. Uh, While I was up in the living in the bush, uh, I got positive feedback for that, rather than for the other stuff. A lot of people took me aside and said, "You know, uh, it was great having you playing the piano here." You know, really. And so I thought, I kind of thought, okay, well, this is something that I'm naturally drawn to. I can't stay away from. It's actually hard for me to be living out here and not playing the piano. But did you never
1: watch, go see a band, or did you never play in the band and get that feedback before?
0: Yeah, the, I had good feedback from playing in bands. Okay. Yeah, uh, for sure. But, but uh, you know, part of the era, it was it was really quite a wild era. And the idea of, of living on the land uh, was really attractive to me. And not only living on the land, but learning you know I wanted to learn all the species of trees I kind of knew them but it's you know I wanted to learn all the plants all the edible plants I wanted to you know I just had I wanted to canoe I wanted to canoe like all the whole all the water systems in Ontario like there were a bunch of things that I wanted to do that were on my bucket list right and the music was was there but it was it never occurred to me that uh but at a certain point uh, I had a friend who was going to York University who said, look, there's this really good um, music program. And I think they might have said, the John Gittens is the head of the music program and he knows Herbie Hancock. And I went, really? <laughs> he said, yeah, he, like he knows Herbie Hancock. Really? And they have all these good people who come to do clinics and they name some really good jazz people. Went, oh, man, that sounds good. And so I went and I uh I, from from up there I went and I auditioned with a guy named Casey Sokol at you know the piano teacher and I really liked this guy I thought wow he's really cool and he knows all the music that i like and and uh and so then i got- i got in i got in and so i i gave up on uh living in uh the bush and or whatever that dream was, and I plunged right into the studying. Piano with Casey and Jazz with John Gittens and there were other people. There was Indian music. Trishy Shankaran was teaching uh, Murdungam. Uh, there was classical music. Uh, I just, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. It was just like, I couldn't get enough. And I was surrounded by other people. The other people who who were around there were all equally enthusiastic about music. People from everywhere you know, like from different walks of like classical, people who wanted to jazz. You know, people who like into R and B. Um,
1: Do you remember what what you what you played for your audition?
0: I might have played uh, I, pl- I might have played some sort of jazz-ish kind of tunes that I had my idea of what was jazz. Again, when I auditioned, I didn't know that jazz soloing was all on the form of, of tunes. So I knew I knew about I could play the blues a bit right right I had played in those blues things so I I must have played a blues and I might have played some fourth chords with the blues or something and uh, I think people nodded approvingly when I, when I <laughs> but
1: I can't I can't help but think that you must have been really exceptional to pass that audition without really you know because I mean I know you were playing in the commune but
0: but I've been playing I you know I, I could play tunes and bands I was Been playing in, in, playing blues bands, and I, you know, I had a reasonable ear. I could hear pretty well anything, except as I told you, I couldn't hear, I couldn't hear what Oscar Peterson was doing in the solo or or Keith Jarrett. Right. And I didn't even know who Keith Jarrett was until years later that 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 was the guy in Charles Lloyd band. But you know, also the way I learned, uh, I learned, I knew the minutiae of certain things about the Beatles. You know, like I could play the whole. I could play Sergeant Pepper from beginning to end, but then there were other things I knew nothing about. Zero. So I, I had some serious catch-up to do in terms of the jazz tradition, in terms of what what you do in a jazz rhythm section, uh, what, what you do in a band, the whole concept of playing metronomically, uh, the whole concept of polyrhythms, of subdividing the beat. It was just a huge learning curve. And I, and I was, you know, I was like, it was like a, a kid in a candy store. I couldn't get enough.
1: So all of it came easy to you because you were so interested in it.
0: Well, it came easy, but then at a certain point, you're soloing in these things and you realize, hey, I'm nowhere near playing like Herbie Hancock. I'm, I'm not playing like Bud Pell. I, I can't, what's what's going on? You know, I'm not making, like I'm not making this. And so then you have to, you, you, you get your confidence gets shattered and then it gets rebuilt as you get positive feedback and I, I got some positive feedback. There was a sort of jazz hierarchy when I was at York and I had to really work my way up and there were times when I would get negative feedback about certain things. It was not, it was not that easy. There were a couple of things that happened though uh, uh, in terms of positive feedback. One was uh, Don Thompson came to do uh, a clinic, and I've been writing songs, writing my own songs. They weren't, they weren't particularly jazz tunes, but they were just, you know, like, whatever. They were some modal, who knows what they were. Like I, I didn't think of, I was not part of. There was a, there were people in the jazz department who really looked. They were jazz purists, and they looked down at like the other, all the other idioms, mm-hmm. including I guess improvised music or. New music, or a lot of the other kind of uh, music that there was, maybe even world music. The, the, the jazz people kind of kept themselves. There were some jazz people who kept themselves. There were some of this other people who were kind of snobbish about what they were doing, who looked down on jazz. And then there was another group of people, of which whom I would say I was one, who liked it all. We loved it all. And uh, uh, if there were any, was any kind of people making arbitrary uh, divisions between music. There was really a solid group of musicians, uh, like myself or other people. Gordon Sheard. I don't know if you know Gordon. There were just a bunch of people who just we just ate it up. We couldn't get enough. And and Don Thompson. There was a there was a moment where they would uh, early on in my career there was a pecking order, and I was somewhere down the pecking order at that particular year. Um, and they said Don Thompson did a clinic, and he he. Uh, he said, "Well, is anyone who would like to play, you know." And so John Gittens would say, "Oh well, you play this, you play that, you know." And and then after that was true, they said, Is anyone else like to play?" And I put my hand up. Anyway, Don loved what I did, and he said, "Who are you, man? <laughs> like, because who are you? Like, what do you listen to? Like, where does that stuff come from?" And I thought, Don Thompson's <laughs> acting so uh do you listen to Debussy? Was that what like and so I kind of thought wow somebody liked something that I wrote. So at that point I kind of I kind of switched I kind of switched my thinking to wanting to not only play but to write my own music. And uh that you know that that influenced me and and uh I also got <laughs> I faked my way into this gig. This is the end of the first year. This is probably around the same time. I, I went down to, uh, there was a jam session on Young Street, at the, the Cock Door Tavern. It's a guy named Terry Logan. And uh, it was, I mean, it, it sounds kind of like, you know, just sort of serendipity, but I was walking along at you know, College Street and Clinton, and I heard a beautiful guitar player playing, playing. It sounded like Jim Hall. I thought, who is it? Who's doing that? It was a summer and was, this music was coming out of the, winter. And so I, the window. And so I, I knocked on the door and said, excuse me, but, like, you're really... Is that you playing the music? I said, yeah. And this guy was dressed, I think he was in a room. There was nothing in the room, but it was all painted white. There was a mattress, there was a guitar, and there was an amp. And there was a music stand. And that's all this guy was. It was his total life. There's no furniture. It was Tim Cummings is his name, a guy from Winnipeg who was in town, and and so I said, well, man, I'd love to play with you sometime, and so we went to my dad's, my dad had a piano, went to my dad's, we jammed for about four hours, playing through the fake book, all the standards, he said, you know, there's a jam session down, uh, you can sit in down at the cock door, there's Terry Logan, why don't we go down there, and so I went down, and I sat in, and so did he, we sat in, and then Terry Logan, to my amazement, offered me the gig. And I thought, you gotta be kidding me! You're offering me a gig, because Terry Logan at the time, like this band, all of, a lot of the really good young players would jam and would play with him. And so, through a weird fluke, he offered me the gig. It turned out that he didn't tell the other keyboard player about it. It was pretty awkward. <laughs> oh, nice. I said, I said, well, you know, I don't even have a, I don't like, I don't really have a keyboard or anything. And he said, well, there'll be a Rhodes there, you know, you just. Just show up next week. I showed up next week, and the other keyboard player was there. He's going. He was mad. He, <laughs> I thought there was going to be a fight. Anyway, I felt bad for the, for the other guy, who was also a really good keyboard player. I mean, uh, not that I'm a good keyboard, but he but he was a good keyboard player. Terry's also a good keyboard player, but he was playing guitar on the gig. So the, I played on that that gig, and I met all sorts of really. There were some really good players like international, Keith Jones played bass in that band. And he left Toronto to play with Wayne Shorter. Hmm. You know, like Howard A played with that band. He was the bassist for the Rough Trade and a bunch of other really good bands. There it was like people would come and go, but it was it was a pretty cool experience. So I started you know, once I started doing that, I started writing more tunes and then I ended up by the time I graduated from York, I was a piano player, but I was also uh, I had written some tunes that and it,
1: but they weren't necessarily jazz tunes.
0: Jazz funk,
1: sort of jazzy tunes. Yeah, sort of jazzy. Okay. Yeah. So at what point so at, at that point did you have an idea what kind of musician you would be or what it meant to be a musician?
0: I think I started out when I started out, I think I was more into I was more into fusion music and but the the rigorous jazz tradition approach that York took, um, like the in general in Toronto, the people who were more into you know either commercial music or fusion music would go to Humber,
1: right?
0: And I went to York, which was into jazz, meaning the history of jazz, uh, but mostly from bebop to maybe the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. It did not include In a Silent Way or Bitches Brew or anything, uh, you know, or Herbery Hancock's uh, Headhunters album. Right. But it was kind of earlier. And so, uh, and it all. you know, York had also this wonderful world music stuff. You know, there were great teachers in every discipline. It was really a really remarkable program. And Casey Sokol was my piano teacher. He was amazing. You know, Casey's just uh, retiring, and there's going to be, I think, he's been the teacher to hundreds of, uh, if not thousands of piano players over the 40 years that he's been there, right? Because that, uh, that was 1973 or something when I started there, so maybe 74, 74. Right. Uh, so well, that's 45 years. So if you have a lot of piano students every year, that's, it, it's in the hundreds of, of people, I think. That he's taught. So, anyway, these people really influenced me. They re- This program really gave me the tools, A, to analyze what was going on in uh, jazz, which, so I understood about fairly advanced harmony in terms of jazz harmony. Uh, by the time I left there, I had transcribed a bunch of Herbie Hancock solos. Like, uh, I had, I really sort of had the tools to do a lot of writing and play and. A lot of different kinds of music so I started doing gigs I mean this is all really my early career this is not stuff that anyone would ever have heard of but uh, while I was there one thing happened uh, just sort of as I was graduating like I spent a lot of time in Berkeley California even took a year off from my university mm-hmm. so in say 78 I would plant trees in the summer and then I would <clears throat> go down to to Berkeley and stay spend time with my mother who lived there and so my sister and all of my cousins in Berkeley, I have a lot of family there. They were, a lot of my female cousins hung out in the salsa music scene. And so, and they would, there was a band called Salsa to Berkeley there. And I kind of got into it while I was out there. One of the things I l- listened was, you know, to Eddie Palmieri. There's a piano player named Papa Lucco. Um And so I, uh, I I was really into salsa. So when I came back my final year of school, I really wanted to play salsa music as well as jazz. A lot of these salsa jazz piano players were deep they had understood jazz harmony right. but using, you know, Afro-Cuban uh uh or Puerto Rican uh rhythms. So what happened in 19 I guess 1979 was In the springtime, I went, I heard that there was going to be an audition for a salsa band and I heard that Gary Williamson was going to be auditioning. So I thought, oh, I want to go and hear how Gary Williamson plays salsa music because I thought I could learn because he's got a really good uh, harmonic knowledge and stuff. And, And so I went to the audition and he wasn't there. And so they said, well, why don't you play? You're a keyboard player. Why don't you play so i auditioned and i got the i got the gig
1: and this is manteca
0: well at the time it wasn't at the time but matt Zimbel from manteca was there and so i auditioned and i said look at he said it's been a fun playing with you You've, you've got the gig there was a guy named armando borg who was playing who i had jammed with before and matt and so i said look at there's been a terrible mistake i've I'm planting trees. I'm getting on a plane in two days to go to plant trees in B.C. Uh, there's no way. I can't join your band. I, I I mean, maybe when I come back. Right. But, so, he said, musical tease. But he said, here's my phone number. This band's, Ar- it's going to be called Armando's Orchestra. And, uh, Armando was, Armando Borg. And, that what they did was, they got, I don't think any of these people were there then. Maybe one, horn player, but they got Humber horn players and they got young Humber people to kind of arrange the music. And so when I got back from planting trees uh, sort of later in the summer, Armando's Orchestra was playing at the Alma Combo. So I went there to watch them and they sounded fantastic. Really good. And the horn, there were four horns and they sounded really together. The percussion sounded really good. I was blown away. And so As they filed off stage, I uh, went up to Matt Zimbel, the conga player, uh, and said, listen, that was fantastic. He said, we gotta talk. Here's my phone number, I thought. And he was was going, band meeting, band meeting. Something had just happened. (laughs) Uh, And something bad had just happened, and I think what had happened was that the keyboard player in Armando's orchestra had just said that he was leaving to play in the Tom Triano band, hmm. which at the time was like a killer band. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you remember Dom Triano, yeah. but killer band. Anyway, these things happen, but so there was some sort of re, uh, there was some sort of something going on in the band and what ended up happening was Matt Zimbel had another set of auditions for Manteca and Armando's orchestra, Armando, they had their own kind of auditions for something uh, that would become, I don't know. Ultimately, I ended up playing in that band too. Called, it was called Coconut Groove. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, but anyway, so I auditioned for Manteca and I got the gig. And the personnel changed a lot, but I was part of the original. Uh, Configuration of Antec in nineteen seventy
1: nine, and you wrote a lot of stuff.
0: Well, but I didn't want i i as I was in the band. First, we would play other stuff. We played salsa music, but as things went, I thought, "Wow, I wonder if they would play my tunes." So I started bringing songs in. I would write them out for four horns, and then we would we would learn them, and and they become ultimately. It's you know, we ended up. By the time I ended up quitting Manteca in nineteen ninety one, I was writing about half the tunes in the band. And other people would come into It was a very fluid situation. Mm-hmm. Of the original man, mantetians uh I think John Johnson uh and myself uh well, but now Matt Zimbel is now the only original man Mantetian left. But uh, you know, from the original band, uh, Henry Hiley was one of the he was one of the founders. Uh, He wasn't there at the original, you know, that first uh, audition I did, but he was playing in Armando's orchestra. Um, John Johnson. The horn section kept, you know, the lead, the horn players were all from Humber. And I didn't know them. I, you know, I I met John Johnson for the first time uh, at the first Manteca rehearsal. But I really grew as a writer from playing in, in the band, partly because the horn players were so good that if they couldn't play something, it was like, no, it shouldn't be, you shouldn't have written that. (laughs) And also, they were pretty flexible because we were all young in the world music thing at York. And so I wrote some tunes. One of the tunes that I wrote was called Ruin Zori. And uh, that turned, that might have helped Manteca head in a slightly different, more world music-y. You know, and some of the other stuff I was writing was you know, I wrote a tune called Nouvelle Afrique uh, that was 12-8, you know, more a lot of more polyrhythms. So Manteca kind of, I think I might have influenced Manteca a little bit in terms of what I was doing. You know, I also, not long after playing in Manteca, I started putting my own records out. So, uh, uh, and they were super eclectic. You know, they had some jazz. They had some of these sort of, Bruce Coburny kind of things, you know, like Celtic kind of folk tunes, and also, uh, you know, African, you know, African influenced kind of tunes. Okay, so polyrhythms.
1: When you have, when you have a jazz background, and I know you don't consider yourself a full-on jazz musician, not, but not but you really. have, I let's see, yeah. the jazz background. You do some world music. You're influenced by. African music and uh salsa and whatever. Yeah. Does does making commercial music meaning something that might be more accessible to something that would go on the chum charts. Right, right. Was that ever um an interest to you or it was never about that? It was about making music that was that you were passionate about. Yeah,
0: passionate about. Uh, the fame side uh or money, I never occurred to me to try to make money i I was influenced in a big way, I think, by Bruce Coburn, who was kind of like a back to the lander type mm-hmm. too. in fact, I think he, he he was probably not from very far from where we when I was had that little stint there uh, it was probably not very far and Bruce Coburn had was basically a kind of a folk singer who had studied at Berkeley School of Music right uh, so he was musically trained who ended up putting out records. I kind of wanted it to be like, uh, you know, Bruce Coburn without singing or something and, and just putting out, you know, or a lot of the music weather report was doing really eclectic stuff. Um, there were a lot of really positive role models that didn't fit into any cubby hole. Right. Uh, so I, I it just, I just wanted to make good music. And the fact that meant, you know, Manteca was another thing of, you know, being in a band with people who are that good, uh, I learned a lot and then once I had my own band I had I had a lot of really good people playing in it you know Alex Dean was like the first sax player and then of course I was playing with John Johnson and Manteca so he would play Ron Allen played there were they were just I just kept meeting good people a lot of the people who played in my group right. were really good uh and so and I you know the other thing that happened was you know in terms of African music was I wrote a tribute to Nelson Mandela uh, uh, just from reading about him in the newspaper. He was not really well known back in like maybe 1981. And uh, in 82, I wrote a song called Mandela, which was on my first record. I got a deal with Radio Canada where that in combination with my grandfather giving me, a, he died and so I had a little bit of money so I got I put out my own record on on Ra- Radio Canada or wow. and uh called Nouvelle Afrique and it was it had all that combination I don't know that it it might not have had any jazz tunes per se but it was eclectic and you know there were these sort of they were kind of like african tunes but they had slightly jazzy or modal kind of harmonies uh, there were some fun, sort of gospel funk kinds of tunes they were kind of Celtic folky kind of tunes it was really eclectic I mean I didn't see any difference I saw no reason not to put all this different kinds of stuff out there but that that record uh, you know got some good reviews I was all kind of excited about it but you know i I couldn't really afford to do many much of my own gigs. I couldn't afford to pay the musicians because uh, I wanted to use really good players and that was always kind of there's availability issues and also uh it was hard to uh you know i would lose i would lose money every time I'd do a gig of my own stuff
1: so what does that do to you as a solo artist
0: Well, I had to sort of i what what happened really, at a certain point, was I had to put everything on, my, on the back burner uh, because once I started playing in, like, 1985, 84, 85 with Molly, uh, that and then with Holly in 1986. Holly Cole. Holly Cole. Those things had natural momentum. And there were a bunch of things—a bunch of things—that I learned. I mean, this is something that probably only musicians would would notice. But when I was trying to make any sort of impact of my, of my own uh, in the early '80s, outside of Manteca, just I would make you know send new Nouvelle Afrique. I'd send it out to club owners. I'd send it out to American record labels, now magazine to be reviewed. Nobody would pay any attention never got any sort of response. And so I, one day, uh, I started playing with Molly. Molly was the the kid sister of Tabby, who I used to play with in high school, or not in high school, yeah, in high school. And I mean, she might've even been in junior high. In high school, I was playing with at parties with Tabby. Hmm. And Clark Johnson was a good buddy, buddy of mine. And so Molly was like, the kid's sister and uh, uh, her boyfriend at the time uh, said uh, why don't you play with Aaron so it was kind of like sure let's do it she had a beautiful voice mm-hmm. but she was kind of shy uh, she was very much into the punk scene she was living at the Cameron House um, and everybody on everybody knew her on Queen Street she was just like a legend on Queen Street, people would come to her room and the artists would come and this guy, Adley Gawad, would say, I brought something for you. He'd take a huge canvas, really good artist, huge canvas, he'd go, tch, 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 with a staple gun, and he'd just put it on her wall. Oh, Adley, thank you so much, you know. It was kind of a really artistic scene down there mm-hmm. on Queen Street. But I had been always playing with Manteca and doing like, Jobbing gigs, like weddings, uh, playing in clubs uptown, like the chicken deli or something. Right. Couldn't, nobody would pay any attention to me. But then, once I started playing at the Cameron House, things changed. And they changed really fast. Because, because the people who were into art for art's sake, music, like wanting to have a band, it's a different mentality Than people like me, who are musicians who went to school and who, musos. I was a muso, and they and a lot of the people who were playing down there were. uh, It was much more. They weren't necessarily trained, but they were just dead serious about music and about the art of music, or the art of art. There were a lot of artists down there. Same thing, Um, and it was a real scene. And if you're part of that scene, you were sort of accepted. And if you weren't part of that scene, then people like Now Magazine only paid any attention to me. There's a guy, I think his name was Buzz. He was the person who, Now Magazine used to be, I think more of a kind of a tightly knit family of people who, it was very political, and it was very, uh, uh, it was kind of making a statement. if. A, a, uh, restaurant had now magazine it was kind of cool Mm -hmm. and so they they sort of cared about whether you were an artist or whether you were a hired gun right and so i was just noodling on the piano that which was often out of tune with broken keys and stuff and it was again a guy saying who are you man somebody from now magazine i said oh i'm Aaron, yeah, I'm playing with Molly, you know. And then people started coming to Blue Monday, which was started out just being Molly and me. And then Molly would invite other people. A bunch of people would come and and play. And I would never know, really, who was going to be there. You know, there's a guy, Bill Grove from White Noise. He would play some of the time. There was uh, Terry Wilkins on bass. And, you know, sometime after I'd been playing for a while with uh, uh, Molly a lot of people started getting loads and loads of people would come because I don't know if Molly really realized how good she was. Mm -hmm. She was really, you know, a lot of people could try their whole life and not sound like, like she does because Mm -hmm. it's just sort of, you know, she was into Billie Holiday. She would start singing and I I taught her, I would, I had my fake book and every week, it's like oh, let's add some new tunes because we had to have enough tunes to to play for for a while. And so uh, uh, I would you know I would teach her jazz standards, in my solitude, or um, sophisticated lady, or lush life. You know, and every time in, in lush life she would go, I will I will live a lush life in some small dive, and she, she'd she'd. Like gesture around the Cameron House, <laughs> <laughs> and so that turned that had its own momentum.
1: How how did that make you feel when 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 you've done your solo albums and you can't really it's it's gotten some critical acclaim but you can't really get any publicity or it doesn't have a life and then you work with Molly and things start happening.
0: Well, it it was. Uh, uh, Again, I didn't. I actually did, I think, have a, a see a division between my own tunes, which I, I kind of thought of as being the pinnacle of my expression, and my playing on standards of somebody else's tunes. Mm-hmm. But I love the standards. Uh, I love playing with Molly. And then right around that time, I started playing with David Pilch on Jobbing Gigs, and he and I just had a. Immediate kind of click thing, uh, uh, where we could play, we could sort of do anything we want. We could middle of the tune, we could just start playing another tune, and we would pick up on what was going on. I could just start playing, doo-ding, gang do da and he'd start going, doo-gong, He'd just come up with a part, and all of a sudden, it sounded fantastic.
1: How do you explain that? What is that?
0: Well, it's just, just, you know, kind of. A, he's a really good drummer, but or drummer and bass, like groove bass, yeah. bass player. But it's just, it's just a thing that happens sometimes when you're when you're playing, and and uh, so once that happened, once I started playing with Dave, it kind of it altered. <clears throat> I actually learned a lot from playing with him. It altered a lot of my preconceptions and. Uh, um, my conceptions because you see he had his father was a really good musician his brother was a really good musician sister was a really good classical musician he grew up he didn't go through music school at all hmm. he was playing with blood sweat and tears i mean when he was 18 or something he was playing he was one of the top call people to play with all the jazz greats at uh basin street and Bourbon Street. Um, Heavy bass player. Right. And uh, so once I started playing with him, I got him on the gig with Molly. And as soon, we did a gig, I don't know where it was, maybe Hard House. And he said, this is amazing. He said, you know what? People are listening to us. And that, that was something, you know, I had done a lot of... Gigs playing at airport lounges Or jobbing gigs Weddings Or people are like Blah 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 yeah, blah yeah. blah And basically what happens is The musicians are kind of Playing for themselves And appreciating each other's Company and musicianship mm-hmm. And it's all it all goes out to the audience But the audience Back then there were Bands everywhere there were Not a lot of DJs And so He said They're listening to us And it's true, you hear a pin drop. And so then, you know, uh, when I was playing uh, I started, and there's no drummer too, no drummer in that band, with Molly, and so we started doing really good gigs. We would open for Richard Thompson, we opened for Donovan, you know, doing big gigs. Uh, and I started getting press, you know, I got one uh, article by Greg Quill that said, uh, "Aaron's plays with named all the singers that I was playing with because I was playing with i had started playing with Holly at that point and uh with uh I've been playing with Molly and I also started playing with the Parachute Club so you know Lorraine Sagato sings and that there I was playing with a lot of singers and so they kind of framed me as being this guy who plays with a lot of singers and so I didn't really uh I never you know I, I kind of I tried to just uh, accept. Uh, I looked at the, you know, I, I was writing music that Manteca was playing, so there were people. I was getting some positive feedback from that, and uh, with my own band, uh, you know, to be honest, I found it hard. I found it hard to keep it together. Mm-hmm. I, to keep the band together, uh, and it was hard. It was hard to be a leader, and, and make to be the sort of responsible party. At a certain point, Holly just... The Holly Cole Trio started having enough momentum on its own that I had to quit everything else. I had to quit Manteca. I basically quit my own band. I thought, you know, it's... Whether it's my personality or whether it's because my record... I came out with a second record on Duke Street Records. But, you know, there's... Molly sang one tune on it, but, and then this guy Basi, Mahlasela, who had written the lyrics in Sutu and Zulu to Mandela, he was on two tracks, but he went back to South Africa, Then uh, there's all this instrumental stuff that's really eclectic. So you can do that as a leader, or you can be part of the Cool trio where you've got complete free reign creatively, and where everybody wants wants you to perform and it just had its own momentum Mm -hmm. and so you know I sent out demo tapes to Bruce Lundval wonderful man uh, who was the I don't know the vice president of Blue Note or the president of Blue Note records Uh, and also uh, there there were he had other (laughs) different sort of labels that I had sent my demo tape to or sent my Canadian record to never heard back with Holly, you know, we were going out and eating at these wonderful restaurants and sharing stories about the history of jazz. We would go to a club and hear Ron Carter, and then Ron Carter would come over and we'd hang out with Ron. Car- you know, it was just, it was like a, you know, a, all of a sudden you're plucked from basically this world in Canada, in Toronto. Which has its own kind of parameter, parameters and borders, mm-hmm. and and with the Holly Cole Trio, for a little bit, all of a sudden, we're living in this, in the whole world, and and uh, wacky things happened. Um, in Japan, we went to Japan, I think in '92 or something, after the second record we did, um, and. S- a, J- a Japanese DJ, like somebody who had a radio show with the NHK, I think it's called J-Wave, came to L.A. We had a deal with, with Blue Note in the U.S., but uh, this DJ heard the song Calling You, and uh, he played it on his station, and everyone f- phoned in and said they requested that. And within a very short period of time, Toshiba EMI who, uh, or EMI, who had been distributing it, I guess, in the U.S., they got orders for 20,000 imports, which is huge mm-hmm. for, to actually have that many records imported. So uh, they got, gave a record deal to the Holly Cole Trio, which was, at the time was a band. And so David and Holly and I flew over there And uh, it was like a dream or something because everybody, everybody knew who we were Uh, and like we're super fixated on all that we had done. So, you know, like the the fans there were. uh, And so that because of the support there, that sort of helped uh, the support back in North America. And, you know, I mean, Holly ended up selling huge numbers of records for a while which meant that there was another record. You know, the way they did things, you know, the that record sold a lot. So then there's the the next record, which, and then we were auditioning producers who were kind of like, you know, who had produced big records. And, and then that was successful. And then the next record was, we did a Tom Waits tribute record, and that was successful. But then after that, things kind of, with Holly they changed a lot because David quit the band moved to California and really the focus that had been on uh us as a a trio um it all went on to Holly Mm -hmm. and so I continued to work with her I continued to do the same creative stuff that we did when we made records but it was uh the way it was presented to the world was different. And so that had an impact on, uh, on me and, and my career. And it also led to a, a lot of touring. You know, the way there's this sort of uh, way that bands that are successful uh, make it, it's how the Bare Naked Ladies made it,
1: right. it's
0: how Sarah McLaughlin made it, and that is to get in a tour bus and just hit the road. And that's what we did. Uh,
1: so, if we just go back, yeah, the success you had, this all of a sudden things blowing up, what did that teach you? It taught me that
0: um, success is is partly a random thing, and that it is only success can be. Uh, you need a bunch of different <clears throat> things to be in place for success to occur. Mm-hmm. And being talented, talented is not not a necessity uh, for somebody being su- successful. That uh, you, some of the people that I knew who were successful. I mean, I think everyone had a base amount of talent, but I knew a lot of people who were really talented who weren't well known. Mm-hmm. And but then here's the other question: How do you measure success? Right. That's a philosophical question, and. Uh, <laughs> Part of what I, how I would measure success is, I think that certainly at, at base, you have to be able to make a living from your music. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just uh, there's some, a real tragic element in it. Um, and a lot of really talented musicians are not making a living out of, from, from their music, <clears throat> and that's tragic. So one element is to make a living. Uh, Another is to reach a wide audience. Another is to reach a wide audience of people that you uh, hold in high regard. Mm -hmm. Another is for you to feel as an artist artistically satisfied by the music that you've created. In a way, it's kind of like having kids, right? You are bringing things into the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably you can't really take credit for musical inspiration because who knows where it comes from? I don't know. Right. You know, like it's, getting an idea in the middle of the night, you hear a tune? Where did that come from? You know, so that's a whole other kind of issue. But uh, I think that um, success, I mean, here's another way of gauging success. If you can have a career just as a musician. Yeah. That's part. Of, with making a living. I mean I've managed to do that. So in that sense I've I'm successful. <clears throat> there are a lot of ways in which, you know, I would say I have not yet succeeded, you know, in terms of finding your musical voice. I mean, I think I've found it, but I don't know that anybody else would would know know that.
1: Well, Somewhere along around this time, or a little after, you got into doing soundtracks and right. film work. Yeah, and like at, I'm not sure if you still maintain the same pace that you did, but you were doing four to six scores a year. That's right. Um, how did that start? Because in some ways, I would presume you're well known in that field as well.
0: That was again. It was it was uh, serendipity. I mean, I the. Uh, I had some friends from school who needed music for. They became filmmakers. Uh, actually, uh, the Wayman brothers, hmm. or two, uh, they did a film about Jack McClellan back when I was. And they they would they knew that I was a musician. They would come to my gigs and stuff. And they said, "Hey, can you do some music for our film?" Yeah, sure. Uh, did uh, that
1: come easy to you? Maureen
0: Judge was another. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I had to learn the technology, but once I learned the the basic technology of how to synchronize music to. To picture, then it's just—I mean—I was really eclectic in my—you know—I played in all these different idioms, right. and films often will need need things uh, that are that integrate elements of different music, and so thing happened. There was really kind of a, a glory days for me musically uh, around 1986 and 87, because it was when it was when the um, really for about five years, around that time. the, the uh, I just put my record out. I was playing with all these bands, you know, by my own band. I was a very productive time. And uh, I was approached uh, potentially by management to potentially sign some sort of do a deal in the United States. <clears throat> and I went out to, I was asked to go out um, to meet Herb Alpert, uh, with A&M Records and stuff and uh, you know I had written I had written a song that they had heard a demo of it was just, it was just me it was me singing me. the song I mean I didn't really consider it ready for prime time but um, his wife uh, Lonnie Hall had heard it and and liked it and so she was doing a record and so they flew me out there and I had a I spent a day playing with hanging out with Herb Alpert, playing my stuff and I played him everything. I played him Ruan Zori from Manteca, this African kind of tune, which I still think is really good. I played him Nunu, which is a Manteca tune that David Blaymire is singing. It's kind of Brazilian, sort of a lyrical approach, kind of like, a little bit like that album, As Falls, Wichita, So Falls, Wichita Falls. Uh, I played him some just a bunch of things that I had done. I even played him some early Holly Cole trio. He said you know, I think you'd be good at doing films because you're doing so many different kinds of things. So I guess what he thought was, I don't know how I would, how would I put out a record of Aaron Davis? I don't know. He's doing all these different things. Right. Now for me, I can't, I think it's all good. Mm -hmm. I have no problem with different idioms. For me, I see a, a connection between all the different things in my music but it meant something for somebody like Herb Alpert to be to say that he said you know look at when I put out my uh, records I didn't play a million notes in the trumpet but when people hear it they hear the Lonely Bull or they hear Tijuana Taxi they know that it's me right they say oh that sounds like Herb Alpert well you know to sign an artist that's that's what I want to hear I want to hear that the voice coming out so it's possible that people heard more of my voice as a musician from my playing with the Holly Cole Trio right. uh, from those records. Because a lot of people listen to, the, in Canada anyway, and, and in Japan, listen to those records. There's no drums there. So you can really hear the pian- what the piano's doing, even if it's just a part that I came up with. You know, Misha Brugger-Gosman approached me about playing with her uh, maybe about 14 years ago. And she, she was a big Holly Cole trio fan. So she, you know, I remember going to her a few years ago, we went to a restaurant, they were playing an old Holly record, and she was singing a bunch of the solos or the, the piano parts. And I was going, I didn't even remember ever recording that song. <laughs> we did a lot of records, right? So, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like some people, I guess, maybe heard more of who I am musically from me playing on some of these other tunes. But I've always considered myself, first and foremost, a composer. And uh, not really a lyricist, but a composer. And so I've been, I've collaborated with other people who've written words to my music, including a tune with Mary Margaret O'Hara. She wrote Mm -hmm. a beautiful song. Never recorded it, but it's, boy, it's a beautiful one. Written some with Mark Jordan. And I guess at least one of those, maybe two is on a, one of them was recorded by holly and me and and uh but over the past maybe 10 years or so uh i've been sending tunes to to ron Sexmith. ron ron used to play with holly we used to go when we were touring the united states we'd it'd be a double bill with ron no. and with holly i guess i don't know maybe the canadian embassy must have been putting some money in. i don't i have, I have no idea how it happened. But I loved his writing. And so uh, he's written tunes to four of my, uh he's written lyrics to four of my melodies. So when I do gigs now, I've just started uh, what's what happened recently was uh I had started writing poems, writing music to my father's poetry, my dad's a, a mathematician, but he's also a poet and a science fiction writer. And so for his 60th birthday, he's now 93, I wrote, put some music to a couple of his poems, which Holly sang at the birthday hmm. uh, for just for the family. And I played, did a couple of gigs, like the Bamboo Club or something, with, with Holly singing it and with a band. And I always thought it was really good, but at a certain point I thought, you know, this is probably too personal. like. It was like Holly didn't want to do it in the trio. I just sort of thought, okay, well, maybe this is a tune that I write that's for, it's personal. Right. But then about five years ago, this woman phoned me out of the blue uh, from Kingston, and I don't know. I've forgotten her name. I've got to find her name. I think I can maybe do some detective work to find it. But she had a choir, a women's choir, and she said, did you write that song, Answer. I've never written a song called Answer. And then she sang a bit of it, and I realized that it was this setting that I had done for my father's poem, the song called Sing Us Back. Answer, sing to my singing. It was, and so she had apparently been given a cassette tape. Somebody had been, without me knowing it, had been recording the concert of the bamboo and had given her this cassette tape, and she had learned the tune, She didn't get all the words right because it was just, you know, cassette tape in a club, you know, that's being clandestinely recorded or whatever. Um, And uh, she had been singing it every year since for, I don't know, 20 years or something.
1: Wow. And so she liked singing it wrong. Sorry? Singing it wrong.
0: Well, just she had some of the words wrong. (laughs) The music was right, basically. Uh, I mean, some of the chord voicings might have been a little different, but yeah, anyway, so. That was independent verification that somebody liked you know the songwriting Right. and I knew that people liked my instrumental writing because I had because of Manteca because we were I'd put out all these records of Manteca so you know it's like you look at yourself in the mirror we're we're never I don't think people are very good judges of themselves and so I kind of I had sort of given up on doing my own record because I thought nobody cares nobody cares about stuff. And with Manteca, they like my instrumental writing, so I'm an instrumental writer. Herb Alpert said, "I think you'd be good at songwriting or you'd be good at film writing." And I got I had some positive again. It's things that had their own momentum Mm -hmm. from the film uh, film world. I mean, I've been talking about myself for a long time. So maybe it's time to stop about that. But I, I had some good experiences. I wrote a Hollywood film score for a Roger Corman film, and people liked it. Like the Hollywood Reporter, the Varsity, or the Variety magazine, liked, they mentioned the score. They said something nice about the score. And it was sort of a fluke that I even got to do the, the film thing. I mean, I wanted to do films. I had done one Canadian feature at that point that was nominated for an award. So I had a reel that I could play them, and I had all these records. But the, my my good fortune was, I sent them my record Neon Blue. That had a lot of that sort of modal, jazz sort of Celticy kind of, moody jazz, mm-hmm. but moody in a kind of unusual way. And the director or the producer really liked that, and they, tempt my music into this Roger Corman movie. And but the but but he said you know I. Phoned him about it. He said, "You know, it's a real shame that I didn't get your music earlier because I really like it." But Jean-Luc Ponty is, is going to be doing our score, and Jean-Luc Ponty, of course, is a really great jazz violinist, with yeah, you know, yeah. Frank Zappa and everything. And so, I wow, that's so cool, man. <laughs> so, but then what happened was they get, they got nervous about Jean-Luc's touring schedule, and they had my music was already temped in to a lot of the film, so they said look at can you get on a plane tomorrow and so you know I went down there and and the whole experience was really positive I recorded it back here with the same people that I've been playing with with David Pilch and Rob Pilch and uh and and uh it it was you know everything worked out it was like a dream and and an agent approached me about from one of the big agencies and wanted to represent me and my wife and i went down with our little child and we thought we were going to maybe live in la and stuff but i decided not to do that i decided to go back because i did, i Trio was just sort of happening this is 1990 hmm. and i thought no i've got a you know reality is toronto that's what i thought
1: was that a difficult decision yeah but but you you went on to do like at least hundred yeah, movie scores. Right? But what
0: I was thinking of doing was going to move to LA. That's what everyone was urging me to do. They mm-hmm. said, "Oh, if you want to make it in the film biz, this is what you've got to do." So I went back to Canada and I and I did a lot of film scores. I did, you know, a few other uh, Hollywood type things, but mostly Canadian films it helped to get film scores that people knew the Holly Cole Trio, and it helped that I had done Hollywood film. Right. And I, you know, I had, as part of my, you know, I, I had these reviews that showed that somebody liked some of the music that I'd done. But again, there was a fluky aspect to that, right? Fluky because they had temped in my music to the film. Right. So they wanted me to be me. And the tip, a lot of what happens in, in film which is not so good, is that people want you to, oh, we need music that's like this. Well, I was kind of arrogant. I thought I could do anything. But you know what? I'm probably not that good at writing hip-hop music. Mm -hmm. There's certain kinds of things that, you know, if it's going to be world music, I'm going to be definitely collaborating with somebody who plays that stuff. So, you know, I could, I think that I had an ability to integrate all this stuff, I think ha- I had an idea to hear, you know, hear music. Like if I could hear it, I could probably lift it, and I could probably replicate it, depending on the budget at the time. Uh, so I got to do, I did a lot of film scores, and and one of my buddies from York was this fellow John Lang. So at a certain point, when really I started getting a lot of different films, uh, John and I would work on them together. We just Okay, you take these cues, I'm taking these cues. Uh, Typically, when you're scoring a film, there is some sort of continuity in terms of instrumentation Mm -hmm. or the melody. Like, let's say we did a film called Sex Slaves about human trafficking. So there are going to be some of the time in the Ukraine with this one character. I mean, some of the time, I guess, the thematic continuity or the palette of sounds... Is adheres to a character, and some of the time it adheres to a location. Right. Some of the time it could even adhere to an event.
1: When you got the call, going back a little bit to the lady in Kingston who loved your song. Yeah.
0: So what happened was she liked it. So that's I started thinking, fine, I'm going to do some of my own gigs, because it's that is the independent verification of what that my stuff might be worth listening. The other thing was my dad was getting older, and I thought. You know, he's sort of unsung. These are sort of beautiful poems, and I want, I think that people should know him, know about them. And I also thought these poems, because I've been writing all this music, think about it like 110 film scores, all the music for, you know, the Man, Manteca stuff, all of my own stuff, a lot of which wasn't getting performed. I was just writing stuff, but then just wasn't getting performed. A lot of the arranging that I did for Holly and for Misha would have independent musical material that was not really wasn't it was not really related it worked with the songs right and i'm not going to name the tunes but there's a lot of material in there there's just tunes that could have been uh, they're basically my they could have been their own songs but i just used them in the service of an arrangement of a jazz standard it's all good know i made the decision to do that but a lot in a lot of the cases these are like orphans they're like ideas that need a place to live and so i found myself using ideas writing films even some of the time that were that could have been tunes but it's like okay well just tonight it's a snippet and then you do variations well those variations might have found their way into maybe that would have been the b section of the tune Mm -hmm. but it's just all music musical ideas coming out of uh, the composer's head so so, so in the case of those the reason I'm doing these, my dad's music or my dad's poetry in my settings is that there was independent verification they wouldn't have if people hadn't because I can't tell whether what I'm doing is going to reach other people or not I don't really know just the way Herb Alpert and they he listened to Ruin Zori I thought Ruin Zori was a great tune he didn't want to sign me he didn't I thought Nunu was a great tune they like this other tune that I wrote called Pretty Boy Alley I mean maybe there were words I didn't write the words but you can't tell I couldn't tell I couldn't tell what people what other people would like it's like I might have a hint that they might like it but but do you think I believe in my own music it does so I I don't know what other people are going to like if somebody says I've been playing that tune for 20 years uh it means they must like it. Mm-hmm. Therefore, maybe I should be performing it. I'd like other people to like it. <laughs>
1: well, it's, it's funny because, you know, there's been certain themes that, that's been repeated. I mean, that being one of them of not knowing what people would like. But, you know, throughout your whole career, I don't know if you've actually went to an audition ever and not gotten the audition.
0: Let me think. <laughs> I didn't get the audition for Armando's Orchestra. But that was partly because
1: you were going away.
0: <laughs> no, no, this is after I had come back. Oh okay, I auditioned for both with well, the two bands, what was to become Manteca and what was to become Armandos Zerka? they were two 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 like the Armandos orchestra was like Ricky Lazar and Armando and Mario Petramonica. And the other one was like Matt Zimbel and Henry Heilig and and people from from Humbert from the the horn section. So I didn't get that audition they came in and they put a bunch of music a bunch of written music in front of me and I was like oh jeez I don't know I don't know how that goes it was coro 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 it had a you know a montuno but it was like a two handed thing and I was I didn't I probably didn't equip myself all that well plus we did some jamming and, and I and Ricky Lazar uh, we kind of hit it off a bit and I didn't get the gig, but nothing ended up happening with Armando Orgas. It f- fell apart. And Manteca did well. And then what happened after that, Ricky Lazar ended up playing with Manteca in the progression section. And then he came to me and said, You want to start Coconut Groove? And so I started doing that with with him. But as far as auditions go, I mean I don't I haven't really auditioned for many but it they, just
1: seems like whatever you did, you seem to have gotten... I know that you don't want to harp about yourself, but obviously you're pretty good at what you do.
0: <laughs> I, You know, I don't even know... I don't know what that means exactly. But but it's it's whether people... It's whether... Like, whether people react to it. They, they reacted positively to the Holly Cole Trio. Mm-hmm. And, and they've reacted... You know, some people have re- reacted positively to other aspects of things that they... You know, Manteca was was popular but you know i don't know how i don't know how to measure a lot of these things i just march to my own you know you know to what i i hear music i try to capture it i try to put it down i love playing with with like good musicians it's like the biggest thrill Mm -hmm. and you know i've i've had some amazing in my career i've had some amazing musical times it's like I can't explain how good it is. It's well, you know, when you go and hear, like we went to see, hear Liz Wright. Mm-hmm. So imagine being up there and being in the, the band and playing. Wow. There have been times like that, you know, whether it's with Holly or, or Misha or Manteca or my own band. Like it's, uh, I did this house concert at John Johnson's house. It was a thrill, you know. I was playing with this amazing band of singers and and players. I mean, it's just, it blew my mind. And so that is like, to have that as part of your life, to have that be something that you do every once in a while uh, is is just fantastic.
1: So I wonder, we have to wrap this up, but I wonder that kid who who played piano but never really thought that you wanted to go become a professional musician and maybe you would have preferred to... Plant trees. I don't know. If you didn't become a musician, what what do you think you would have done?
0: Well, I had a bunch of things that I was interested in earlier. I studied botany for a while. At the time that I was going back to the land, I had taken some botany courses at University of California. And my father's mathematician, so I mean, my mother's an historian. You know, so it could be that there's that I have some. I don't know about math, but I. I could have possibly gone into the history or English or the social sciences. I could have been an academic. I could have been a contender. (laughs) You know, I'm interested in a lot of of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I could have, whether I would have been good at them, whether I would have liked the scene, I think academia, if I had started way, way earlier, then I might have been okay at that but I don't I don't I don't really like like as far as academia and music there's there's a a problem in that I kind of think of music as being sacred in a certain certain kind of way and there's a certain deconstruction in some music uh, uh, musical analysis that I I think robs it some of some of its vitality mm-hmm. so I'm one of the analyzers I, I definitely do that if I'm going to teach I, you have to do it. It's very useful to know all that I know. But for example, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to know about what parts of my brain are triggered when I th- listen to music. They, they always say, "Oh, why don't you do like a, a test and we'll see what centers are." You <laughs> but, know, check your brain waves. No, nope, not into it. Because I think it's. I, I. think of music as being I, I, sacred. Like I. People talk about sacred music, but I actually think just music is sacred period. And the way it affects us as human beings, it's like one of the, it's one of the gifts we've been given. So there's, and it gets used in ways that are cheap and crass, and there's music that maybe is higher quality than other music, but it's it's definitely a a gift. And, And so you can choose to accept that gift if it's given to you like if some if you're hearing music that you think is good for me it's like i've got to do something with it Mm -hmm. if i think it's good then i want it to have a life so that's kind of that's the way I, i guess composers think you know
1: so my final question you've had this fascinating life of movies and success and various musical projects that you've been involved in how do you look back on that journey
0: Oh, well, I, I mean, with fondness. Uh, I think there's some, I have regrets about, I have some regrets, there are certain things that I did, certain choices that I made at certain places that were, I think were um, were mistakes. But I'm so, I'm happy to be alive, I'm happy to still feel it within me and, and to be playing with other great players. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm a happy camper.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure.